Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. Just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. The first is that you guys know I follow the program Crime After Crime, which is hosted by Danielle Hallen and John Lorden. It's a podcast, but it is available here on YouTube in video version, and it comes out monthly on the first of every month, and they have just released their, released their most recent episode talking about strange arson crimes. And the reason why I'm sharing this with you guys is, I think in the true crime world, many of us tune in because we simply want to know how do other people think, why do they do the things they do, and how does human behavior lead from one thing to another. So if you want to hear the stories of the arsonist who was responsible for 90% of California's fires at one point, or how a group of individuals in law enforcement as well as firefighters, I mean, talking about police officers and firemen, orchestrated a thrill fire club. I invite you to listen to Crime After Crime's most recent episode. And I also thought about this because in a lot of the true crime cases, such as the Zodiac Killer or the Long Island Serial Killer, people are debating the evidence to this day. They're, they're saying, are these interpretations significant? of a single killer, or is there a thrill-kill club, a group of people who have planned murders and try to make it look like a single person? Well, in the most recent episode of Crime After Crime, they talked about how there could be a thrill-fire club where a group of police officers and firefighters started staging arsons to try and make the public think that it was something else. You will find new things in the true crime world all the time because the human mind is always changing. Crime After Crime available here on YouTube. And as always, you can download this program that you're listening to now, that's Black Box Online Radio, for free at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. And that is the audio version as a pure podcast. If you would like to download the video version with the images, you can use YouTube Premium, but that one you have to pay for. Launchpad 1 is free. So, one more time, Launchpad 1 is under the same name, Black Box Online Radio, but the easiest way to find it is to go into the description box and click on the link. Speaking of things in the description box, a great way that you can support this channel and all these efforts is to go over to buymeacoffee.com, and if you are interested in making a contribution, anything is welcome. And thank you for your support, and you will get a shout-out on Zodiac Monday. Over the past several weeks on the Anything Goes segment, I've been talking about the case of Stephen Avery, who was made famous because of the Netflix docuseries Making a Murderer. And I've also been reading the book Illusion of Justice Inside Making a Murderer in America's Broken Justice System by Jerome F. Buting, also known as Jerry Buting. But... I've been following Making a Murderer, and I got into the second season, and I was really quite surprised that the second season was so much better as for, in terms of a broadcast or a docu-series than I thought it was going to be. My original hunch was that they made a, a series called Making a Murderer, and it turned out to be somewhat popular, so they decided to do a second season, and it was just going to be some leftover material, or they were going to talk about some of the new press coverage surrounding the case and reactions from people who had watched the series. No, the first um, three episodes were just filled with new insights and valuable information. 
And I think that they provided some very clear descriptions on how these crimes could have taken place. For example, let's go all the way back to the beginning. In 1985, a woman named Penny Bernstein is attacked. She is sexually assaulted, and the person almost tried to murder her. And someone would be wrongfully accused for this, and that was Stephen Avery. He would end up spending more than a decade behind bars, but then DNA would exonerate him, and they would find out that Stephen Avery did not commit the sexual assault and attempted murder of Penny Bernston. That was done by someone named Gregory Allen. I mean, DNA is DNA, it's not his DNA on her. It seems like an open and shut case. But of course, in 1985, DNA was um, perhaps not even on anyone in law enforcement's mind at the time. But then Stephen Avery is released from prison in 2003. And this is where the name Making a Murderer comes into play. From this point, he is free for about two years. Then, in October of 2005, a woman named Teresa Hallback is murdered. And, as I said, the second season of Making a Murderer really shared some very vital information about how the prosecution was conducting their theory on what happened to Teresa Hallback. Because they say very clearly that there are two participants. One of them is Stephen Avery, and the second one, from the title of this episode you can see, is Brendan Dassey, Stephen Avery's nephew. Now, their theory, as they, as they shared in the courtroom, was that Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey committed a variant of false imprisonment, forcing Teresa Hallback into a particular bedroom in Stephen Avery's trailer. She was actually there to photograph some of the vehicles on the Avery property because Stephen Avery's family owned a salvage yard or a junkyard. They had, oh, uh, thousands of vehicles. I forget the exact number, but numerous ones, but she's there to take photos for Auto Trader. And then Stephen Avery forces her into a bedroom. Then Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey participate in shackling Teresa Hall back to the bed. They said very clearly shackling. They believe that restraints were used on her hands and wrists, as well as her feet around the ankles. Then both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey excuse me, committed the sexual assault on Teresa Hallback. From this point, her body was taken to her own car, a Toyota RAV4. Stephen Avery would have been in the driver's seat, and then Teresa Hallback's body would have been in the back of the Toyota RAV4, and Stephen would have made a very short drive around, and then dumped her body in what's called a burn pit, which more or less just seems like an area where wood was regularly burned, and in most of the photos, you can see charcoal, and then that's where the human remains of Teresa Hallback would be found. Prosecution supports this by saying that she, Teresa Hallback was on the property, Stephen Avery's blood was found in Teresa Hallback's car, and Stephen's nephew, Brendan Dassey, confessed on camera during an interrogation that he was involved as an active participant to these crimes. Stephen Avery was given life without the possibility of parole, and Brendan Dassey was given life with release in the year 2048. 
it's some either some type of early release or a variant of parole, but he's not expected to get out of jail until 2048. But the issue is, firstly, Brendan Dassey is someone who has somewhat of a low-functioning um, mental state. Well, they try to say, I'm trying to be polite, they say he has a rather low IQ, or perhaps he simply did not understand what he was doing in the interrogation. And of course, making a murderer is taking a very persuasive stance. It's called making a murderer for a reason. They're trying to show how the authorities just fabricated the narrative against both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, asking leading questions, presenting him with false dichotomies. Now, did he commit the crime here, or did he commit the crime there? Only giving him two possibilities to choose from, and from someone who doesn't really understand what was going on, because all Brendan Dassey wanted to do was to go home, and he's even asking at one point, if he says what they want, can he go home before the 29th because he wants to watch WrestleMania. So very clearly, he didn't seem to comprehend the situation. And at this point in the program, they introduce a new attorney for Stephen Avery, and her name is Kathleen Zellner, and she is doing a lot of recreations of possible ways in which the murder of Teresa Hallback could have been committed. The first one is by looking at the blood evidence. And the authorities state that Stephen Avery's blood is found in the car, therefore he did it. How on earth could his blood get into her car if he didn't commit the crime? I mean, this is definitely explored in Jerry Buting's book, which I'll talk about in a second. But the first one that they suggested was the blood was in the completely inappropriate places. And their theory is that he had a cut on his hand, and that he touched the car, well, like the steering wheel, the gear shift, but the blood was in the exact wrong places. It, would, it, it was most likely staged because if he had actually been driving the car, he would have been left in completely different areas. And you can see this in Making a Murderer. They put um, more or less some um, imitation blood on someone's hand. And then he's moving around in the car, and it looks completely different. He would have only been able to touch certain areas in this way versus certain areas in that way. The second is something perhaps a little bit more convincing. They bring in a fire expert who is very f famous in the world for knowing how a human body can be burned. More or less a scientist, and he's even working with a forensic anthropologist, and he shows that the burn pit in Stephen Avery's backyard could not have caused the fire damage to Teresa Hallback's remains because it was in the backyard. It was outside. It was open air. And the heat would have escaped differently in this situation. If, it, if she had been burned in a different place, it would have looked like this. And it appears that they didn't have the um, ability to hold in the heat to produce the burn damage to Teresa Holbach's remains. So that's two things. The blood evidence is inconsistent. The fire pit is inconsistent. And even a third piece of evidence that is introduced is something that's a little bit more controversial. And that relates to an advanced form of polygraph testing. In fact, they didn't even call it polygraph testing. I've talked a lot on this channel about lie detectors and do people think that lie detectors are accurate or not. 
Well, in the older days, a lie detector would go off of three factors. Heart rate, blood pressure, and galvanic skin tension. And then they came out with the computerized polygraph, which was supposed to focus more on how something is coming from your imagination rather than your memory. Like, if someone is imagining it, that means they have fabricated it on their own. And it's going to send these types of physiological tracings through the body, and those could be recorded by the polygraph examiner. Horribly, horribly downplayed, though. But I was talking to somebody about this about five or six years ago when I said, the advancements that they are going to be talking about is that in the near future, someone is going to be wearing a neurocranial transmitter, and that is simply going to do a more advanced form of that, reading something from your imagination or your memory. And the thing they showed in Making a Murderer wasn't really a polygraph test. Instead, they're showing Stephen Avery certain words, like Teresa Holbach drove a Toyota RAV4, so they show him that, and parts of the brain light up with a connection to memory. Yes, he knows what this is. He knows that's her car, she drove a Toyota RAV4, but then they ask him details, and they show words on the screen relating to the details of the murder of Teresa Hallback, and it showed that it was not coming from his memory. So, brain scans, we'll call it that, so blood evidence, the um, inconsistencies in the fire pit, and brain scans are all suggesting that Stephen Avery didn't do it, and Brendan Dassey is only being viewed as an accomplice and then the thesis of making a murderer is that Stephen Avery was framed more or less by law enforcement, and secondarily, in turn, Brendan Dassey would have to have been framed because he was only viewed as an active participant. You remove Avery from the equation, there's not a lot to stand on. But you can see that from the title of this episode it is, Was Brendan Dassey Framed? And right now I would like to go to Jerry Buting's book, Illusion of Justice, and much like last week, just read a very small section. This is from the part of the book called A Pixel Rarely Makes the Picture. And the uh, kid that they use some, the name for sometimes is Brendan Dassey, just to be clear. Is there any DNA evidence backing up the kid's story, one asked. The prosecutor seemed to have anticipated it. Yeah, we're not going to comment on that, he said, suddenly coy. He drew a breath. We obviously have a lot of evidence, and I guess we can say, he continued, that there is a substantial amount of physical evidence that now makes sense. A lot of it fits together. A lot of the pieces fit together. In fact, scarcely an iota of Brendan Dassey's story would ever be corroborated by physical evidence. But despite two centuries of American jurisprudence on due process, there is almost nothing stopping a prosecutor like Kratz from claiming that a substantial amount of physical evidence now makes sense when laboratory tests proved just the opposite in almost every instance. And I was really thinking about that because you must have heard some things in that introductory statement about how there are these two guys, Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, and they brought a woman into a bedroom and she was shackled, her hands at the wrist and her feet at the ankles, and She's more or less restrained to a bed where she is sexually assaulted. And other than Brendan Dassey's confession, I was wondering that myself. Where on earth would be the evidence that would be incriminating him in the case? I mean, we're talking about 
DNA and a sexual assault as well as perhaps blood evidence inside of her car if they say if they're saying that there are these two participants or maybe even some type of physical evidence on her the remains that they found from the fire pit granted in a fire DNA is often destroyed but not always I mean I mean in the um, case of the mansion murders involving Darren Wint they were even able to attain a very small amount of DNA after a fire it can be done but that's just the whole point they don't have any physical evidence and even if they're going to say that his evidence his DNA could have been on her body before she was put into the fire pit well coulda woulda maybe but that's not physical evidence that would stand up in a court of law and that would definitely also give reasonable doubt so back to the book here scrutiny of the criminal justice system rarely makes it onto the public eye in public cops and prosecutors are almost invariably seen as wearing white hats for good reason kratz might have had no worries about being called to account if the story that came out of his mouth at the press conference turned out to be contradicted by virtually every piece of evidence but you see though how uh, jerry buting is arguing that the prosecutor's just putting on a show for the reporters they have a substantial amount of physical evidence so now the story makes sense it's exactly what they were accusing the officers of doing during the Dassey interrogation they're just presenting the possibilities and they're leading people to a particular possibility for Kratz Brendan Dassey was at his most useful as a gothic specter on dozens of news broadcasts contaminating the jury pool for hundreds of miles paradoxically he would have been the most dangerous to the prosecution at the Avery trial where he would have been both a witness and an exhibit of investigative excess cops and prosecutors are often the good guys just not always and sometimes they go far afield sometimes it starts to look like the Avery case was going to be one of those times and we were soon going to see how twisted their pursuit had become the prosecution did not hold a monopoly on the travesties that afflicted Brendan Dassey's case some were captured on camera but a few critical ones were not the day after Kratz's gruesomely detailed press conference Brendan was brought into court for his first appearance in front of a judge even with all that happened since making a murderer an important part of the day an important part of that day is still gone largely unnoticed and unremarked upon when a person accused of a crime goes before a judge for the first time it is generally a routine proceeding under our system police and prosecutors cannot unilaterally decide if someone can be held in jail after an arrest within a day the authorities must appear before the judge and explain explain briefly why they believe that this person committed a crime and then address what bail conditions if any are suitable then the judge decides how to move forward the prosecution almost always succeeds in meeting the low standard of proof required at this stage often an affidavit or complaint sworn in by an investigating police officer will suffice but that does not mean that the defense should write this initial appearance as a pointless ritual at this time the defendant has the right to ask for a preliminary hearing which forces the prosecutor to call witnesses who can then be cross-examined by the defendant's lawyer a preliminary hearing is not a trial and in the overwhelming majority of instances it will not unwind a prosecution before it even gets going 
but it is not an exercise in futility, as good lawyers can pick up on a few nuggets of insight to their strength of the state's case, or even point out unexpected weaknesses. These can be valuable because most charges are resolved in plea bargains, and the terms of a negotiated deal often depend on how strongly motivated the prosecution is to avoid trial. And one more time, that was from the book Illusion of Justice by Jerry Buting. So, there are a lot of big things in that statement right there. The first was the one at the end, talking about plea bargaining, taking a deal. And in the third episode of season two of Making a Murderer, they're discussing this. Why didn't somebody like either Stephen or Brendan Dassey take a deal? Why didn't they accept it, plead guilty, and get a lower charge, even if they would have been facing 30 years in prison? But Stephen Avery has always maintained his innocence. He said that he was innocent the first time, and that appears to be true. He was exonerated from DNA evidence, by DNA, DNA evidence, rather. And he says very clearly he had just gotten his life back. He was free for two years. Why would he throw his life away again? And the prosecution is taking the stance that, oh, he thought that he was untouchable at that point and no one was going to do anything. He was above the law, so he committed the murder of Teresa Hall back because he thought he was going to get away with it. And, I mean, absolutely saddening, because it looks like the physical evidence is in contradiction to that. Now, you might be wondering, well, if Stephen Avery didn't do it, and if Brendan Dassey didn't do it, who on earth did murder Teresa Hall back? And I have to give you the boring answer of, I don't know. It's not even an I don't know, it's, I don't know, comma, but I really want to know, and I think that it is just um, definitely going to be one of the more powerful elements in this unsolved mystery, because even Netflix is presenting it as, even though they're taking a very strong stance that they believe that Stephen Avery was innocent and that Brendan Dassey was innocent, they are promoting this as there's still the possibility that these two men committed the crimes, and the evidence against Brendan Dassey is hanging on by that confession, but it's pretty damning. I mean, they're asking him some leading questions, and he said, yes, I did it. Variants of that, but, I mean, any jury that would be looking at that would definitely have to take that into consideration. And it would be so saddening just to think somebody got duped into that because they didn't understand what was going on. And even even more saddening is that the fact that if somebody did hypothetically stage the scene, taking Stephen Avery's blood and planting it in Teresa Holbach's car, or moving her physical remains to the burn pit at Stephen Avery's house, uh, I mean, like, the, the amount of thought that would have gone into that, just putting somebody in jail for the rest of their life for something that they didn't commit, uh, it's, um, I mean, it really comes back to something that um, was discussed I forget if it was Jerry Buting who said it or someone having a conversation with him, but they said that, I hope that Stephen Avery is guilty. Just the thought of an innocent man being in prison twice for crimes that he didn't do because the state just doesn't want to deal with him because the justice system doesn't want to deal with him because he had a $36 million lawsuit against them. But, I mean, if he didn't do it, then the real killer of Teresa Hallback got away. And... It just seemed, on the notion of plea bargaining or accepting a lower charge or pleading guilty, 
It just seemed like it was out of the question. He wanted to maintain his innocence. And his own attorney talked about how this might not be the biggest metric to evaluate someone, but Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey were both extremely cooperative. They wanted to go along with everything. They wanted to go along with every test, with every examination, because they knew that they were the evidence would show that they were innocent. However, they are still in prison to this day, and very, very um, saddening and emotional stuff. However, what do you think about the case of Stephen Avery, and what do you think about the case of Brendan Dassey? And I know I've been talking about both of them, but I did a previous episode called Was Stephen Avery Framed? And these are arranged in a playlist, but I would like to know more about what you think about making a murderer or about um, the case of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey and the murder of Teresa Hallback. And in the future, I'm hoping to do a standalone episode on Teresa Hallback, just her as a person, as opposed to the suspects and her murder. And the next book that I will be reading after this one, Illusion of Justice, is Wrecking Crew by John Farrakh, and I'm looking forward to that one. Big thank you to Jerome from the French Wrecking Crew for supplying me with that book, Wrecking Crew and the French Wrecking Crew. Good stuff. Anybody can write this program at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box, as well as Instagram, blackboxned88. Feel free to visit some of those other links, Launchpad 1, Buy Me a Coffee, the book is Killer on a White Horse, the Teespring page, and I will see you over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.